You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season nine, episode 11, Golden Shadow with Shobaraka. Before we get into today's show, I want to let you know about another podcast I've produced titled Naming the Animals. This podcast is an eight-episode series that follows a chapter-by-chapter discussion of my book, Naming the Animals, An Invitation to Creativity. Each episode features a guest from various creative or spiritual disciplines who walk with me through the book's primary theme, Creativity as a Spiritual Practice. If you're interested to hear in-depth yet practical discussions on how creativity and faith intersect, this podcast is made for you. See the show notes of this episode or visit anchor.fm slash naming the animals to listen. I've recognized that the more humble and honest I am, I feel the better my art will be. The more I try to communicate a particular political, theological view without it being well thought out and honest, the less likely I feel like people are going to connect with it on a very creative and human level. Shobaraka is a globally recognized recording artist, performer, culture curator, activist, and writer. His work combines his artistic platform with his academic history to contribute a unique perspective, elevating the contemporary conversation on faith, art, and culture. In this episode, I talk with Sho about his book, He Saw That It Was Good, Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair a Broken World. Here, we discuss how art and imagination address the issues we face in today's society in ways other forms of communication cannot. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Sho Baraka, as well as other guests of the podcast. This is Golden Shadow with Shobaraka. Show, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure. It's been a minute. <laughs> yeah. We were trying yes. to get you to the breath and the clay, and then the whole world shut down, and uh, we went virtual, and we've been talking about doing this interview for some time, so it's, it's a real honor to finally get to sit down with you. Yes, have fun when we um, when we had our last conversation, and uh, definitely looking forward to this one. Absolutely. Well, man, I want to dive right into your book. He saw that it was good, and I'd love to know why this book was an important book for you to write in this time. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, I, I do think it was paramount for this time, but it's honestly the only book that I think I was willing to write. So if it would have been five or six years ago, I would have wrote it then, (laughs) which is (laughs) somewhat interesting anyway, because I do feel like uh, this concept, these words, the idea of addressing the brokenness of the world through art is necessary through all history, through all time. And uh, it's it's not a time when it's not important, basically, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I think even now, in thinking about how do we reimagine a broken world, how do we reimagine our politics, our our culture-making, our even our faith traditions in a sense of, without, you know, 
reimagine them too much, but uh, friendships, our relationships, just the things that have been influenced by some of the polarizing views and thoughts of our human makeup. I think it's good to just say, hey, let's, what does it mean to speak creatively to these things? And so I think it's important now, as you and many other people will affirm that artists, poets, creatives, they shape society. Right. And then politicians kind of follow and academics kind of follow. But, you know, an idea, well, maybe an idea is thrown out there. Let's say an academic, a politician, someone throws an idea out there, but artists really have they they have the ability to the, the common individual the every individual to to embrace it if it's communicated in a way that is palatable if it's communicated in a way that is subversive and um i think that's we need that now absolutely <laughs> with good ideas yes we need politicians thinkers academics to come up with good philosophy good sociology good theology and the artist needs to take it and market it in a way that is helpful without it being propaganda, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, I want to pull a quote from your book and get you to speak into that, if you would. And in your book, you said, we are all creative in some way or another. No matter the work, it can contribute to the good of society. But we still need to ask how we can fully live into our creative calling, how we can find transcending principles that will help mature our creative life. And so I want to ask you, in what ways do you see that art and imagination has the ability to address some of our issues in society that, say, politics or other forms of communication might not be able to address quite the same way? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think um, there is a way in which creatives, creative communicators, let me say, there's a, there's a way in which creative communicators can break down problems that um, maybe a preacher, a politician, and uh, an academic can't, right? You know, I, I wish I were savvy enough to think of a, a very practical example. But for instance, imagine a academic talking about, you know, systemic issues. And it's a very comprehensive approach. It may take them an hour to do the kind of work that an artist can do in a three-minute song. Mm-hmm. by communicating a parable <laughs> or a story that tackles the same principles. And by the way, it's also fun. It's repetitive <laughs> yeah. and it gets stuck in your head, right? It may not be as comprehensive as the teaching, but it sticks longer. You know, the human mind can't retain an hour worth of information, but we can take three minutes, memorize it and regurgitate that pretty often. We could reproduce that. And I think stories have the ability to end songs, stories, songs. It has the uh, wonderful ability of interjecting us into the narrative. So, mm-hmm. you know, now, you know, you read a novel, you read, you read, you know, some fiction about something that is addressing uh, systemic issues. And now you can actually see yourself in it, you right. know, you, because the artist, I mean, the artist will, you know, tries their best to paint a picture of a complex individual. So now you see the complexities of human nature. So you're not, all the way evil and you're not all the way good. You're the, Some of the decisions you make may be beneficial to you, but it makes you a villain to someone else. And so now you see like, oh, wow, like I, in the making of this decision, I, I thought that, you know, X, Y, and Z. Now, art can also do the same thing by exasperating a particular point of view. So it's not always, you know, honest, if you will. Right. 
But I do think it has the ability and it's less tethered. Hopefully it should. And I think I do think that's the problem with more recent art. It seems to be overly politicized and we're trying to force a lot of ideas down people's throats where politicians are doing enough of that. Preachers right. are doing enough of that. Right. And so I think if we can had it, if we had artists who can be more honest and say, hey, here's a picture of humanity, very similar to what I think the Bible does. It's a, it's a story, right? It's telling you who David is. And in the depiction of David, you see David doing some things that are very admirable and holy. But then you also see David doing some things that if he were to do that today, canceled, canceled, canceled. <laughs> it makes me think you said in your book that even the shadows of our stories are important. Yes. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that. Early in the book, I talk about four individuals that I admire. And uh, those four individuals are MLK, G.K. Chesterton, um, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, and an individual who's not as known as the other. Uh, his name is Alexander Crummel, um, known to be somewhat the father of Pan-African thought. And each one of those individuals have contributed, a great, contributed great ideas to society, academic and social. But the more you read them, like you would do anybody, the more you study a person, you start to find things about that individual that you're like, oh, <laughs> this is uh, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, for instance, like G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, he just he wasn't very uh, adamant about women uh, suffrage, women's suffrage, and mm. um, and he didn't advocate strongly for that. You know, um, now we can all look in retrospect and say, oh, he should have been. Adamant, you know what I'm saying? But where would we have landed in that time in history, right? Uh, the Du Bois, on the other hand, is uh, are also is an individual who fought or wrote about justice, was very adamant about racial injustice, but at the same time, you know, supported Stalin and wrote admirable things about Stalin, you know, mm-hmm. and we you know Stalin considered a war criminal, very vicious and ugly human being. And so I think what the the problem is is and, and and not to offend but to speak truth to more contemporary times you look at some of our politicians specifically maybe a Donald Trump and it's not so much that I just think Donald Trump is inherently evil right mm-hmm. or that the people who support Donald Trump are inherently evil it's the lack of consistency in which they tell a narrative mhm and so if you support an individual like Donald Trump, for the previous 20 years of your life, you talked about how morality and political uprightness and social uprightness is a is a is something that you should admire and that this particular voting block should esteem. And then all of a sudden there's a candidate who you begin to support who doesn't uphold those things, but they uphold some sort of political expediency and for you to hold power and authority then that's the, that's, tell the truth. Like, just tell the truth. Say, you know what? Honestly, look, yeah, he did these things. He said, grab women by the, you know. Hey, you know what? We don't care. We really just want political power. The more you tell the truth about your shadows, I think the more people are willing to actually come to the table and say, let's have an honest conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But the more you, you try to hide and you ignore the things about the people you admire, the less likely there is going to be any kind of civil discussion, any kind of real, honest discourse about the things you're adamant for, the things you think your opposition are trying to remove from you. And I just think it just makes humanity easier to deal with, if that makes any sense. So I just feel like, yeah, the shadows of our heroes are important. And um, 
and the more that we acknowledge it, the, the easier our opposition, and I hate to use the word opposition, but the more, the better our opposition is willing to come to the table as well and admit the truth about their stances and their ideas. Well, you mentioned the Bible a few minutes ago, and it's interesting because we call it the Holy Bible, and yet inside of this collection of stories and genealogies, we see some things that would be considered very unholy. But in the, the broader context of what the overarching narrative is pointing to, I think that it, it brings up some really interesting questions that I think follows along with what you're saying about talking about the shadow side. And, and quite honestly, that's something that I think I'm learning in my own life, mm. that learning how to share some of the vulnerable places of my journey, some of the uncomfortable things to talk about, especially in a world that is very driven by cancel culture or that is very polarized. So I'm wondering in your perspective, how can we find a redemptive narrative through some of the very difficult things to talk about or how in your experience, maybe a better question is, um, how do you see the shadows as serving the greater narrative? So I think I love the way you propose the proposition of what the Bible is. It's a, it's a very honest narrative, you know? It tells the truth about not only humanity and the church, but it tells the truth about Adonai. It tells the truth about God. Like in one story, he's like, wipe out everybody, the kids as well. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, children? Like, <laughs> and then in the latter, he's like, children are precious. Like, what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. What do you do with that as somebody who believes him to be holy, perfect, and blameless? You know? So, you know, there's a bit of this mystery about God that we just may not be able to to understand, but we can comprehend enough so that we can worship him without apprehension, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. And to also understand that the idea of redemption is beyond our our human capacity to fully, fully understand. You know, I was listening to this pacifist community like talk, and uh, you know, I I, I'm, I I tell people I'm like one good sermon away from being a pacifist, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was listening to him talk, and he was being challenged about, um, you know. Well, no, he didn't even challenge. He just said, like, and I understand being a pacifist means if you put me in, in you know, Nazi Germany in 1940s and you say, what do you do about Hitler? The reality of my answer is I, I do nothing, you know what I mean, to some degree. And yes, that very may well mean that I may be speaking German right now and that the nation in which I live in is would be occupied by Germany. But I have a belief that, you know, God works out things for his best or whatever, you know, and I'm just kind of putting language. And for me, that is a lot of what we're wrestling with in the sense of this idea of shadow and uh, kind of like just mystery of like, man, look, I I recognize that there are some things about the faith that I don't completely understand. There are some shadows and shadows don't always mean bad too. That's the other thing I want to, I want to emphasize when I talk about golden shadow, you know, Gold loses its value and the shadows actually protect in some sort of way from the exposure of the sun, right? So mm-hmm. um, so in a sense, like there are times when the shadow 
can be very, very dangerous, but it's also in recognizing the shadow because it can hide things, it can hide good things, but it also can protect us from an overexposure of knowledge, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, if I can get real deep, this is kind of like what we find in Genesis. Like, there's a reason why there was a to to abstain from the particular trees. Like, again, to to know too much is going to be problematic for you. This is the purpose of the virgin or the, the separation of the Tower of Babel. Look, there's good in, in being a part of nations and tribes, but to make it an ultimate thing will be a problem. And so this is where I'm thinking like, man, how do we wrestle with this idea of good, evil, gold, shadow, knowing the truth about ourselves, but also operating in the mystery of who we are? Um, I have no idea if I answered your question. <laughs> 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 Actually, at one point, I started to realize it's like I don't even think I'm I'm going somewhere totally different. <laughs> but you know, on this topic of shadows being important to our stories and and talking about the Holy Bible containing both holy and unholy depictions of our human life, taking that a little further, you continue that concept throughout your book of light, gold, and shadows, and darkness. You know, these concepts are steady throughout the book. I'm curious why, and I'm curious where that inspiration comes from and why that's important for us. Yeah, you know, I think it's been a journey for me. Um, I think it started, I it really hit me, I think, in 2020, I was a part of a rally during the summer after the George Floyd murder. And I, you know, they gave me a mic and I spoke and I was, I was so upset, you know, mm. like most Americans are like, yes. you know, or like many Americans, shall I say. Right. And I got on stage and I made some very strong statements about our, like, you know, our, our president of the time and a lot of people who supported the president at the time. And when I got off the stage, I felt really bad. I, I just, I didn't feel, <laughs> I spoke with um, the truth of like, you know, you can, you know, Jesus flips over tables, right? And even in his flipping over tables, there's an holy, there's a righteous indignation in that, right? And you can walk away from being very like angry and still feel like I did that within the works of the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I've actually cussed somebody out and I felt like that was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Uh-huh. But at that moment, I got off the stage and I didn't feel that. I didn't I didn't have that feeling. I felt like I spoke in my flesh. And a friend of mine, one of my dear friends, like pulled me to the side. He said, look, man, I think you, you need to kind of process through your idea of, uh, of how you feel about human beings, et cetera, et cetera. And at that moment, and I just, you know, I, I, I kind of just started reading and consuming. And then I had a family member who voted for Donald Trump and was highly supportive of, of Donald Trump. And this is a family member who I l- love deeply. <laughs> I'll just say it. He's my oldest brother. I have two brothers. My oldest brother. And I was just, this is a brother who grew up in the streets, <laughs> like <laughs> hood, you know, gangs, <laughs> drugs, all that. And all of a sudden he's like, yeah, you know, he becomes a Christian and he's just like Donald Trump, Donald Trump. And I was just like, what in the world? <laughs> and so in my relationship with him, it actually brought humanity, not only to 
um, you know, Trump in some ways, but also, you know, people who support him. And I couldn't just say, well, people who support Donald Trump aren't Christians. They don't love the Lord. They're, you know, they're ridiculous. I, I started to think like, why? I just be more curious about why. And um, in that, it led me to this understanding of what does it mean to hold tightly to a view of not only an individual, but something that you believe to be true. And then when you hold that view, what does it mean to hold that view in great humility while at the same time feeling that you're right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But then even then, what does it mean to hold that view, hold it with humility and communicate it to the world? And so for me, as I was writing this book around the same time or completing this book in some ways, I said, what does it mean to be kind of like a Christian humanist, to, to see the world as humanity as being folks who kind of vacillate from good and evil. There's no fixed evil. There's no fixed um, good, but we vacillate at times. I talked about David in my book as being an individual who we write praises about him and we sing his praise. He wrote the Psalms, but at the same time, Uriah's family probably saw David as this, (laughs) this villain, like, you know, who is this? You know, why do y'all praise the name of this individual? Yes. Like he did nothing but brought harm to my family. And on the vice versa, you see a Jonah who preaches the, the redemptive love to Nineveh. And he has every reason to hate the Ninevites because of what they've done to his people. But yet and still, God says, I have a plan for them. Mm. And so when you hold these two views and <laughs> and uh, dear to your heart, you recognize I am not as righteous as I think I am. Mm-hmm. And maybe my opposition is not as wicked as I hope them to be. <laughs> mm. And wow. so I tried to write from that posture. It's like, I believe in justice. I believe that there are people who perpetuate injustices. I believe that there are people who who benefit from systems and they want those systems to continue. Mm. But I also recognize that I can just as well be those people. Mm-hmm. And when I speak to the injustices, assume the best about those people while also speaking to the principalities that they are perpetuating versus assuming that they are Satan or Hitler. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right, right. You know? So I was hoping that people could, one, see how we tell stories can be very detrimental. It could be a blessing, but it can also be a detriment. How we tell not only our own stories, but stories in general. Those stories shape how we work and how we work challenges, uh, I mean, creates systems and blessing and curses for the world. And the way we do justice is the same way. And hopefully at the end of the day, we will be very confident about our beliefs, but at the same time, hold them in humility. Man, I love that. Your perspective is so refreshing for me. And I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and he just said, you know, I just, I feel like we've arrived at a place where the middle is lost. We've, we've lost the middle. The bridge is kind of collapsed. And, you know, and so hearing your perspective of holding truths in humility, holding your views in humility, and also a willingness to look at the light and the shadow, to, to look at things from a holistic point of view is so refreshing. And as we're talking about the artist's contribution to society, as we're talking about the artist's contribution to society, I've often called the artist the architects of hope for our generation. That's good. Yeah, you know, and I think that we have that opportunity to hold truth and humility, to look at things rightly, 
to see the light and the shadow, to use your word, to see the gold and the shadows there. Mm-hmm. Yes, and amen, amen, and amen. Architects of Hope, that's great. Um, the middle is not some um, some arbitrary, thoughtless place, all right? Because mm-hmm. oftentimes people think that's a stance of cowardice, a position of cowardice. It's like, make a decision. Mm-hmm. Whose side are you on? <laughs> <laughs> And I've been challenged with that, uh, especially with some of the organizations that I work with, or work with, and have helped start. One being like the And campaign, and um, and so people often say, "Well, it just I really wish you would just make a pick a side." And the reality of it is, is we do pick sides. We pick sides all the time. <laughs> when it comes to voters' rights, we have a particular stance on this. <laughs> when it comes to racial injustice, we have a stance on this. You know what I mean? And so, I think the middle is, you know, it it it, it gets it has it gets bad press. It gets uh, it has bad PR. But it's more so just a. Um, I don't know. I, I think you and I can just. What we need to do is just come up with a better term. Yes. Or, you know, we're just, you know, sensible people. We're just sensible people. That's all we are. This is and I hate to say that and like to make it seem like everybody else is 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 insensible or illogical, but the reality of it is is that I think a lot of us are being tossed to and fro by our party ideologies or the extremes of our party. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, and I think back to what you were talking about, the middle is not complacency, you right. know, and the the middle is not without conviction. Absolutely. To hold that independent. I playfully tell my friends because I'll admit it openly, I hate politics. <laughs> and I and I tell my friends, they say, well, where do you stand? I say, well, I'm a conservative anarchist. So you- <laughs> Hey, you got- <laughs> I, look, I, you know? <laughs> like I said about being a pacifist, right. I am a, I am a good, a good lecture away from being an anarchist myself. I, you know, it's so compelling to me. Yeah. But, you know, I think that it brings up a very important conversation as it concerns the artist, because I do see something that's very concerning to me that most, I don't want to say most, but a lot of art that I see these days, there is a pressure put on the art to hold to a particular view or taken to an extreme to be an agent of propaganda. And I think that that rapes the art, that destroys the art of it. And I think that's what makes art, art is that it can hold this perspective that in some ways it's removed, it's an observance. That doesn't mean that you're without conviction or without a point of view, of course, you know, but I think that there's a way in which the artist is, invited to view things from yes and and a, a removed position but then speaking into it and and that's where the subversion of art comes in that's where the disruption i would even call it a holy disruption that art and artists are invited to contribute to society absolutely and so for me you got me on a soapbox now <laughs> i'm supposed to be interviewing you but like you know for me this idea of art being chained to a necessity of propaganda is very is very disturbing for me. Yes. And I think that even the work that you're doing really speaks to another way Absolutely. Of, of how art can positively influence and bring change to our society. Amen. I am with you. Two things real <laughs> quick. I, um, I think about hip hop artists or even artists in the 70s, right? I think the, you know, whether it be rock, 
kind of like your Bob Dylan's, your mm-hmm. your your Stevie's, your Cooks, the, the the Sam Cooks, your you know Lennons. These are individuals who understood that the I think understood some to some degree, and even hip hop artists today they understand the, the degree of their own personal depravity to some degree. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so in understanding that one, like for instance, a hip hop artist who came up selling drugs and now they're trying to say hey don't sell drugs they understand it's like ah like there's this subjectivity this complexity to me that i know how i got here but i you know i you know jay-z has a line where he says i sold crack so you don't have to do that in a sense i I butchered the lyrics but it's like i think that understanding of who they are and the complexity of how they're depraved also forces them to tell on to be honest in their communication of their lyrics mm-hmm. because they recognize like yeah I'm, I'm messed up myself i may yes. turn around and get high tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> like so yeah. who am i to say like this is a absolute right way to do things right and so i think artists being honest about their own depravity which i don't think politicians pastors and academics have the luxury of doing and so when you walk with a veneer of perfection, you almost have to communicate your beliefs and ideas as if there is no other way because you can't be complex, because you you don't get in touch with the, you or at least you can't be honest with the shadow of yourself, if that makes mm. sense. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I, and I love artists, like some of my favorite writers, like Toni Morrison and, uh, and even James Baldwin deals a lot with this, this idea of like not allowing their political views to shape their art. Mm-hmm. Um, Baldwin had a, I think it was a, a, a lengthy debate and beef with another writer of his times. I think it was Richard Wright about propaganda, using propaganda. And Baldwin was like, art and, and fiction has no place for propaganda. Like. Mm-hmm just write from an honest place and keep yeah. your political views because it cheapens art too. Like as you can, mm-hmm. you probably, it's like it, when I listen to people who are just overly political, it's just like, it's not only do you hear your views dumb, <laughs> it's not even good art anymore. It's like, I just, right, <laughs> I right. don't even want to, I'm not bobbing my head. I'm yeah. like, this is just not yes. good. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, man, not just in the politics, but I think in faith communities for artists that are working in that context, there's the same pressure or the same tension yeah. that like, you know, where's the Jesus fish on your art here, you right, know? And, right. and I've, I've talked to several people that have felt that, but I think that there's, a, there's another way. I know for me, you know, even in my own life, because just a moment of vulnerability for me, the past two years have been the hardest years of my life. And I've gone through a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. some of it I've talked about publicly, some of it I haven't, but I do know that there are things that I've gone through that I've been able to express in poetry and in song that I have not been able to express in other ways. And Mm. there is something about art even being a means or an aid to help us work through some of that depravity or some of that unresolved tension in our own hearts, in our own lives. And I know, you know, for you, you're not only an author, but you're also a musician. You're multi-talented. You're doing a lot of things. I'd love to know just personally from you, how has your own creative process helped you with some of the struggles you faced over the past couple of years? Yeah, I, it's funny. Leaning or 
exiting out of the last part of uh, you know the last question what we were just talking about i've recognized that the more humble and honest i am i feel the better my art will be mm-hmm. the more i try to communicate a particular political theological view without it being well thought out and honest the less likely i feel like people are going to connect with it on a very creative and human level and so I've been just trying very similar to you like this last these last two years I don't know what it is about those last you know since 2019 that has really shaken people up personally mm-hmm. and publicly but me as well like I've I've went through some things in the last two years that have made me realize that I am not as righteous as I thought I was amen <laughs> <laughs> raising my hand yeah here. <laughs> and so in that, it should make my art, my art even more honest than it was before. And I thought my art before then was honest. And, uh, but you know, I find, I don't know how, if you, how much you listen to hip hop, but like Kendrick Lamar's latest album, mm-hmm. I find that, you know, I listen to that album and it's deeply personal mm-hmm. and I'm, 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 I'm listening to it and I'm like, man, like this is an individual who removed himself from the public space, who is communicated like, yeah, I'm not a savior. I needed one line he says, I'm sorry, I couldn't save the world, my friend. I was too busy building mine again. Mm. And I think there's there's something about that that a lot of us can, can relate with because yeah. we're so busy trying to point our fingers at the individual who we feel is perpetuating the problems while at the same time, our lives are falling apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had all these accusations about not only the church, had all these accusations about conservatives and extreme liberals and had these accusations about my wife and I have, you know, these these accusations about uh, our indictments, should I say, these indictments about the church, about politics, about my wife, about friendships, while at the same time not really evaluating my own self. You know what I'm saying? And saying like, where, totally. uh, where, where do I need restoration? Where do I need? Yes. Instead of just saying like, all these folks, I'm gonna levy these indictments on you. Like, what about the personal indictments that I need to make about myself? Yes. And I feel like in those moments, I'm not saying you need to make art because there are times when you need to just sit and be in the valley, just live in the valley, learn and process. And then when it's best for you, to make art remember those moments before you just try to ascend a mountain remember that with those lessons that you've learned and i think right now i've learned a lot about myself and about the world that's going to bless my art even more show thank you so much for sharing your heart for doing the work that you're doing and for joining me on makers and mystics today well it was a pleasure love the conversation was rich it was uh, it was refreshing and uh yeah it was, it was enjoyable. To future pacifist and conservative anarchists. <laughs> hey, I'm telling you. I am telling you. I am I'm this close. I am this close. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by composer Sean Williams. I'd like to invite you to give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics, Leave us a kind review on iTunes, and please consider supporting the production of these podcasts by joining our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll see you again next week. And until then, you know what to do. Keep creating. The world needs your art.